everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm continuing my look at King's examination on identity, writing, alter egos, and our true selves, the existential thrill ride of the dark half, specifically the cinematic adaptation. Now let's think about this for a second. Um... I want to think about this particular movie. At the end of the day, when you sit down to compile a list of the greatest influential storytellers in the world of horror, there are a few names who will float to the top of that list. Certainly King, clearly. Uh, Lovecraft might be up there. Poe might be up there for the literary purists. But outside of the literary genre, there's a lot to choose from. And so think about the swell of the horror genre in pop culture. Uh, movies and television knock down the conventional barriers and let it be okay to be scared. Wes Craven threw down the gauntlet and created the figurehead of the 1980s horror movement. John Carpenter gave us minimalist horror in a small town in the 1970s, but before either one of these icons, there was one man who used horror as a metaphor to speak about the world we live in in a way that many weren't talking about at the time, even though we should have been speaking about it. It's a man who looked at the world and saw racial tensions and needed to comment upon it, so he crafted a movie around it. King, being known to speak on that topic as well, clearly would have approved. This director would later use the genre to comment upon classism and consumerism to varying success, but the one that started it all not only was a strong example of how to tell a story, but ushered in a particular subgenre to the horror genre that lives on to this day stronger than ever, I would say, and Robert Kirkman, creator of AMC smash hit The Walking Dead, owes everything to this man who single-handedly gave us the image that we have of the zombie, and that man is George Romero. Now, George Romero and Stephen King had collaborated previously to this with Creepshow 1 and 2, and again, guys, I apologize if I was being... An absolute purist here. I would have reviewed those two entries um, by now. I will get to them, uh, and I will release them as bonus episodes, so it won't uh, slow down, um, you know, each week's podcast. So I will get to them. But the, these two horror icons have worked together before um, on that particular anthology. But this is the first time that they are collaborating for a feature-length movie, The Dark Half. So. I don't know. How did it uh, hold up? Well, we're going to have to wait and find out. First, I want to get to a listener email. Uh, so anyone um, hasn't done so already, you can follow the Stephen King cast on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Tumblr. And at any point, you can write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com just to you know, share your thoughts and experiences with Stephen King, how you you got into the world of Stephen King, your favorite book, um, you know, which one um, puts you off, um, you know, because King is definitely a, an author who's been writing for such a long period of time. There, there are certain phases um, of his career that, that speak to others more so than, than, than other uh, phases. You know, some people might prefer his earlier works some people might prefer his early 90 works some people might prefer 
um, just the, the the existentialist horror that, that he's been pumping out um, in the 2000s. So, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of flavor to choose from. So just at all points, you can just sit down if you have a free time and, uh, you know, shoot me an email. And if you have any free time, uh, do me a favor and like the, the, I'm sorry, not like, but subscribe uh, on iTunes and write a review on iTunes because the more iTunes reviews and subscriptions that I get, the um, the easier it is for others to find the Stephen King cast. So um, I just want to share this, this listener email who writes, Hi, I just wanted to drop a line and tell you that I just discovered your podcast yesterday and love it. I've listened to both reviews of Joe Hill's books and I'm currently on the part one of It. I've been looking for some good Stephen King podcasts for the last few weeks, and while I found two more that are decent, uh, yours is, as far as I'm concerned, the top of the heap. I found yours through a link on one of your posts on the darktower.org forum, which is something that I wanted to bring to your attention if you're not already aware. While searching for Stephen King on iTunes through my iPhone, yours never came up, while plenty of other King podcast did, um, even non-King podcasts that had episodes about King. Um, so that's why I'm asking everyone to uh, subscribe um, and write a review on iTunes because, I mean, it's titled the Stephen King cast and um, it doesn't even come up a lot of time if you search for it on, on iTunes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Wes goes on to write, um, like I said, yours is the best King-related podcast I've heard. Um, So many of them end up being more about the podcasters themselves or have way too many people chiming in, but your critical analysis um, is great and has caused me to look at the books you review in a different light. I'm a lifelong King fan, have read all of his books at least twice and some as many as eight or nine times, and it's great to get deeper into them and through you discover things that I've never noticed about them before. I'll be leaving a five-star review on iTunes shortly and just wanted to say keep up the great work, Wes. Uh, Wes, just thank you. Thank you for writing in. These are very, very kind words um so i mean I, I just appreciate you writing in and thanks for the um heads up about uh not being able to find it on on itunes um so feel free to to write in again all right everyone uh so what i'm gonna do now i'm gonna jump into the the analysis of of the dark half um and then I'll, I'll, I'll give my, my final thoughts at the end. Um, so the analysis, the first shot that we see is of the sparrows taking off from the trees and they're soaring into the sky. And I, I think that it's a strong establishing shot. Um, and we find out that it takes place in 1968. Um, Elvis's Are You Lonesome Tonight plays as a young Thad scribbles upon his composition book and the birds continue to chirp outside. Um, with the t-shirt he's wearing, uh, you know, which has the Castle Rock logo on it, um, it's just a nice, I just love whenever we see uh, Castle Rock uh, in Stephen King adaptations. With a view of an old barn and a small watering hole, it is quintessentially Castle Rock. Now, at this point, we have seen Castle Rock in the Dead Zone adaptation. We have seen it in the Cujo adaptation. We have seen Castle Rock in Stand By Me. Um so seeing Castle Rock in, in all of these different adaptations uh, just really mirrors us reading the experience of Castle Rock over all the different books. Um, but, I mean, this, th- this location already is just quintessentially Castle Rock. The birds begin to chirp louder. Thad breaks his black beauty um, 
and and he, he clutches his head in pain. He's quickly checked out by a doctor, and his mother makes the connection between his writing and the headaches, uh, which is too on the nose. I mean, we just saw him writing. I mean, as soon as we saw him writing, he immediately clutched his head in pain. You know, I, I think that we can put two and two together. You don't need to spell everything out for us. Uh, but already, Are You Lonesome Tonight?, um, the sparrows, the black beauty pencils, the, the headaches, um, everything that we need in the story is, is already here, pushed right up front. We see that time passes and Thad continues to write, now pounding away on a typewriter. Romero gives us an effective shot, a mother's nightmare, when Mrs. Beaumont watches her son through the window as he clutches his head and falls to the ground in agony. Framing it from the window, looking through, um, it, it's just a great way to uh, you know, put us in her shoes and just create the, the sense of vulnerability. And we get the operation scene. Oh my god, it's so good with a... A shot of an eye blinking in Thad's brain. Oh my god, the fact that it is blinking is such a horrifying addition. It is so gross. It's very effective. It's great. It's a great touch. It's a great moment. Um, and, and the nurse who ran out of the operation room looks out of the window and sees that the skies are filled with billions of sparrows. Romero very quickly has established the writing with the tumor with the sparrows, which, there you go, lays the foundation for the novel. Um... You know, aside from the complaint about hitting us over the head in the beginning with, you know, the the, 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 the fact that the writing causes the headaches, I mean, I, I don't have any complaints so far. I think that it's very, very effective. We then meet Liz, Wendy, William, and an adult Thad played by Timothy Hutton. Um, and Thad has just finished working on his newest novel, which he admits was difficult for him, which will set up the Thad and George dynamic. We cut to his uh, day job as a teacher, and I... <laughs> hate classroom scenes like this where the main character's instruction just so happens to be the theme of the movie you know i i i get that it's a hollywood trope but here it's incredibly lazy as the only two words on the chalkboard are duality and beings as if romero didn't bother thinking the entire lesson through you know here thad talks about the two selves and and we get it all right he has a good relationship with his students uh and he's engrossing in his lesson and his students respond and all the while, he's rubbing the scar on his forehead, getting lost in his own words. He's then approached by Clausen, who asks for a signature and offers up a George Stark novel. Clausen reveals that he knows about the literary alter ego. Here, we're given the actual scene of the attempted blackmail, whereas in the novel, the present day takes place after the fact. So this is a strong choice to keep us in the moment and connected to Thad. We feel his frustration because it plays out with us rather than us having to play catch-up later on. And there's a nice little touch when talking to Clausen when Thad, starting to feel threatened, picks up one of Stark's pencils. Also in this moment, as Thad threatens him, as George slips out just a little bit, uh, the audience can very, very easily hear the sound of birds outside. Thad then gets the ball rolling on the death of George Stark. Over dinner, Thad and Liz have a conversation about the anger and darkness that Thad demonstrates during his writing spells as George. Liz feels that George is a separate person while Thad feels that it's all him. Soon after that, they head up to their perfectly captured Castle Rock home. Um, it's a hustle and bustle scene where the different characters get Thad ready for the big article. The Castle Rock house is picturesque, and it looks lived in. It is a well-designed cinematic setting that, that captures the, the novel's location perfectly. It's very well done. 
Thad pulls aside the secret entrance to his study and gives Mike Donaldson, the writer, the background on Stark. At that point, Donaldson explains what we've been feeling at this point, that the delineation between Stark and Thad feels very schizophrenic, or what is referred to today as dissociative identity disorder. I think that Romero and company have done a solid job at building up the threat level of Stark at this point. I mean, between the text excerpts of his books, which display gratuitous violence, to Liz's confession that Thad is mean to her when he becomes Stark, to Thad's threats to both to both uh, Clausen and Donaldson, the shadow of George Stark looms large over this movie. After the photo shoot, Homer Gamash picks up a hitchhiker, which will be the last mistake in his life. From there, we meet Michael Rooker as Sheriff Alan Pangborn, and, and don't get me wrong, guys, don't get me wrong, I love Michael Rooker, right? But why the hell is he playing Pangborn and not George Stark? I really wish that they didn't double-cast Timothy Hutton as both Thad and Stark. His Thad is effective. I mean, in fact, his portrayal of Thad is a lot more likable than the book counterpart. But his Stark uh, is just not as effective. I mean, Stark was a huge presence in the book. Uh, I mean, I would, what I would say, a spiritual little brother to Randall Flagg with smaller goals in life. During the Stark scenes, I can't get past it, how much Hutton, Hutton is, is acting in these scenes. It, to me, it, it just it never feels genuine, and therefore the threat isn't genuine. Now, if you had swapped out Rooker in that role, however, it would be dynamite. He can pull off a dangerous, charming sleazeball like nobody's business. You know, with that said, I mean, it is good to see Rooker playing a good guy for once, but, I mean, um, if you're going to compare Alan Pangborn characterizations, I'm going to go with the Ed Harris representation from Needful Things. But I'll get to that once we get to the review of the... Um, the adaptation of Needful Things. After the discovery of Homer's body, it cuts to the discovery of Homer's truck. It's a wonderfully shot horror movie scene with ominous music, howling wind, and jump scares galore. From there, we get a minor but somewhat significant deviation from the books as Pangborn and two straight troopers come to the Beaumont's house. Now in the book, Pangborn was aware of the Beaumont's, but they certainly weren't on first-name basis with each other. Now here, however, there's this familiarity that was lacking in the movie, and that familiarity, I believe, changes the dynamics with the, the characters. We then have our first nightmare of baking turkeys, of Elvis Presley and Southern Voices. It's a... Very well-staged scene with incredible imagery. Black-clad jeans ending in black cowboy boots easily step over a pink baby's bag while the khaki-pant legs of Thad stumble ungracefully. And then we get a shot of porcelain doll Liz. It's a powerful image that is completely unexpected and ends with the face breaking, revealing a skull beneath. Freddie Clausen's mutilated body is flying. Um... I'm sorry, is, is, is found with the words the sparrows are flying again scrawled on the wall. In a nice touch, Thad blanks out, finds that he's written these same words on his manuscript and pencil, and Liz whispers he's back. He, of course, turns out to be Alan Pangborn, who has returned to the house. Uh, not George Stark, but it's just a nice little touch. Thad admits to having written the sparrows are flying again to Liz and wonders if he'd done anything else that he doesn't remember. We again hear the sparrows, and again, Thad writes something that he doesn't remember doing, except this time we see him doing it. George shows up to claim his next victim, and Romero keeps the camera focused on George's straight razor and gun. And it's a smart way of showing who this character is. It's not his face that's important. 
This tells us everything that we need to know about him, how dangerous he is. And the murder here is brutal, with Miriam having to suffer at the hands of Stark's viciousness before she's put out of her misery. It's here that we see Stark in full, with a haircut mixed with like the sensibilities of a greaser and a mullet aficionado. I'm interested that we see a scene with Alan Pangborn's wife and son. It's not a huge scene, uh, but when you know the fate of this character's family, it gives the quiet moment a little extra dimension. You know, even though Rooker doesn't go on to play Pangborn Needful Things, it's fun to have this cinematic link between the two movies, as Ed Harris mourns the family that we get to see here. Speaking of seeing, I don't understand why Mike Donaldson feels the need to open his lighter when he arrives in the hallway. The overhead lights are out, yeah, but it's not like he can't see. You know, crazy neon lights from outside cast deep reds and blues in the hallway. There's no fluorescent light overhead, but sure, there's enough light for him to see, so the idea of having him have this stumble around led by his lighter flame, it's a bit much. The lighting in the scene is great, though. Uh, you know, the whole scene plays out like one of Freddy's dreams in A Nightmare on Elm Street. After a few more Stark-killing scenes, we get a moment with Thad on the phone, and I realize here that Tim Hutton has to spend a lot of time on that thing. You know, basically every scene, he's on this damn phone. And all he seems to be doing is just storming around his house and yelling into it. You know, he's giving a master class on walkaway acting as well, you know, he'll, meaning that someone says something to him and he'll, he'll yell something angry and then walk away, but not too far away because he knows that he's still on the scene and he'll walk back. Pangborn goes home uh, in a moment that teases his death, and it's a perfect setup. I mean, there's a jump scare on his way to his door. Inside, ghostly light pours into his living room. A figure creeps up on him, and we are sure at this point that it's Stark. Um, but it's only Annie, his wife. And, you know, because the movie doesn't have to follow the progression of the book, this character can die at any time. Um, thankfully, he doesn't. And soon after, Thad attempts ghostwriting. Sparrows start flocking to the window. Um, he has a pretty great conversation with Stark through journaling, and it shouldn't really work on screen, but it does, because Romero makes it work. The cuts between the birds to the journal with the increasing tension and music makes for increasing suspense that concludes with Stark stabbing Thad through the hand with a pencil just to get him out of his head. And after this, we get a new scene that wasn't in the book with Thad visiting his childhood doctor. And unfortunately for the doctor, Thad isn't the only Bo Beaumont brother coming to visit. Stark sneaks in and slits the doctor's throat while Thad is in there with him, effectively placing Thad in the same place and time as the murder. Thad gets the truth of Stark, um, who is the manifestation of Thad's creative powers. Thad and Reggie have a conversation around the nature of Stark, and Thad reveals that Stark is his dark half, and they discuss how Thad, Stark can't kill Thad because he needs Thad. More importantly for the movie, the nature of the sparrows is revealed. Thad realizes where he has to go, and then heads to Endsville, where Stark looks monstrous at this point. The makeup effects are great. His blood-drenched gauze bandages are grotesque. His cataract eyes are bloodshot. His teeth are rotting. You know, his physical deterioration isn't as pronounced as it is in the book, but it's still effective all the same. There's not as much pus, um, which is such a gross aspect of his rotting, and I'm fine with not having to look at it uh, on the big screen. Now, when Thad gets to Castle Rock, he enters the world that his dream had foreshadowed, and George and Thad meet for the first time. Rotting George is holding the twins, which doesn't have the same level of menace or 
disturbing effect as the book due to the simple miscasting of Tim Hutton. Um, regardless, the mirroring of Thad and George, each holding a baby, um, is a wonderful touch. With this scene, we enter the conclusion of the movie, which is, which is why movies about writers to me is such an issue. Uh, the end of the story involves the transference of power through writing. On page, when such a scene is crafted, it's within the medium of the event itself, so it works. It's appropriate. Uh, to me, and this could just be me, when the act of writing is meant to be an active scene within a movie, to me it just doesn't work. Well, still, I mean, there, there, there is a mysterious magic to the end of this movie. I mean, the score works in its favor. The leering, living corpse of Stark is memorable. Stark begins writing, and the rotting begins to transfer from Stark to Thad, who's had enough and just attacks Stark. And the symbolic fight between the two halves becomes a literal one. Tension swells as the sparrows gather around the house, and the sparrows begin to peck through the walls, revealing beams of spectral light. It's a great image, but I don't know if it carries the same weight in the movie as it did the book. I mean, without King's prose to sell it, it just feels like a weird tack-on from the birds. Hey, and if I have any complaints about this movie, I cannot complain about Stark's gruesome end, as he is pecked alive by the birds. He's literally reduced to bird food, as his skin is first ripped from him, and then piece by piece his bones are torn away. It is disgusting, disturbing, and absolutely wonderful. The birds fly the bones into a vortex in the sky, a nice shot of the supernatural floating above the natural world of the main trees in the full moon. That's always a full moon in horror movies, and I love it. And just as the vortex closes, the titles begin scrolling up the screen. Now, missing from the ending here um, that was in the book is the darkly ambiguous foreshadowing of the dissolution of Thad's sanity and marriage from the fact that he didn't really want Stark to go. So, final thoughts. It's very well acted. It's a very well acted movie. And Romero handles himself well behind the camera. But be perfectly honest, I don't think that the movie ever really gains any traction has great uh, makeup, very effective special effects. Um, you know, I, I mean, and I just appreciate it so much because I know that if it was made today, the sparrows would be CGI and, and wouldn't look as realistic as they do here. Um, I, just, I just don't think that writers make for compelling movie protagonists. To be perfectly honest, I, I, I mean, it's not that long of a movie, but it took me four sessions to get through it all right and, and that we're talking about a two-hour movie here you know I, I it just never held my interest which is too bad you know there isn't anything wrong with the movie you know i mean there's some examples of miscasting here but i mean the acting is still solid you know hutton is great as that and and though i want someone different to stark i mean he's okay um the music i i think is wonderful and romero proves that he still has it behind the camera it's just that something about it just wasn't compelling. And I don't really have much more to say about it. Uh, I mean, even my... I don't really have much of an opinion. I don't really have much thought on the movie, which I think kind of speaks to the movie. It's not really well-regarded in the pantheon of Stephen King cinematic adaptations. It's kind of forgettable, um, unfortunately. Uh, it's very competent. It's a competently made film. It's a competently acted film, but it just does not stand out. So, book versus movie. Uh, this one, it's a clean sweep. 
uh, you know, usually I would go, you know, beat for beat, character by character, but um, like I said, the movie's competent, um, and I will definitely give another shout-out to Christopher Young's score, which is haunting, it's Halloween-y, um, but other than that, I don't really have anything to say. I mean, everything that occurs in this movie is pretty much what occurred in the book, but the book is better at it, so clean sweep, guys, I'm going with the book. So the winner of the book versus movie is Stephen King's uh, The Dark Half not George Romero's The Dark Half. And really what it comes down to is this was Stephen King's examination on on alter egos and identity. And it worked because it was Stephen King working within the medium that he was a master at. So, I mean, it just fit on a metatextual level and, and it doesn't fit here the same way. So something's lost in translation. All right, guys. So that is all that I have for this. Um... And uh, though this movie came out, and I, I want to say 1994, I could be wrong, but it is in the early 90s. The novel upon which it is based came out in 1989 in the dark half. Serves as the final entry in the 1980s, um, which means that we are moving on to the 1990s, and Stephen King kicks off the 1990s with a bang. Um, not just a bang, a, uh, it has to be heavier than a bang. Uh, so an atom bomb, I guess I would say, he, he kicks off the, the 90s with. And that, of course, is the unabridged re-release of The Stand. So next week we'll be kicking off a four-week uh, review of The Stand. Uh, so fans of The Stand, you are in luck. Uh, we will have three episodes dedicated to the book itself. Um, there will be a bonus episode discussing the uh, discussing the uh, connections to the Dark Tower, and I will follow it up with a review of the 1994 TV miniseries. So if you are a fan of The Stand, uh, you have a lot to look forward to. And I also look ahead um, to Josh Boone's... Um, four-part Warner Brothers cinematic theatrical um, adaptation, which is, I don't even know if it's in pre-production yet, but it is, uh, it will be coming, and it's starring, uh, as the trades are rumoring, uh, Matthew McConaughey as Randall Flagg, so I, I do a little bit of fan casting, I talk about my hopes and, and dreams for how that movie will play out. Uh, so it's, it's definitely going to be a good time for Stephen King fans during the next month. So everyone, like I said before, if you haven't done so already, feel free to head on over to iTunes and subscribe and write a review to help out the Stephen King cast. And I will see you all here next week, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear. Are you lovesome too?